Remain standing for our sermon text from Isaiah 9. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and as fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of david and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank You, God, for this wonderful vision that You gave to Isaiah about the age of the Messiah and the salvation that He has brought and is bringing. Help us to understand it to love it, to love it, to delight in it, and to delight in you and your promises and your gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, before I preach, before I do the sermon on Isaiah 9, I want to spend one minute explaining to you why I said. No room for them in the guest room instead of in. That's a cherished passage. But the word in there is actually the word for upper room or guest room. There's a different word for in. And so when the King James, the old English translations translated as in, uh, it kind of stuck and it's a part of our, our heritage at this point. But we'll talk about that someday and we'll talk about what really happened there, but when you read that, you can read it as upper room or guest room. The house that they were staying in, there was no room in the guest room. All right. Well, that probably raises more questions than it answered, but uh, there you go. Pick up a commentary, a, a, a recent commentary, and they'll, they'll agree with me on that. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Because Isaiah, in Isaiah, God speaks of his people's departure from the truth, their need to repent, and their need to be redeemed from their sin by a coming Savior, the Redeemer. 
So Isaiah points his readers throughout his prophecy to this coming Redeemer, coming Savior of Israel, but also of the world. Isaiah's vision goes beyond Israel's salvation. To the salvation of the Gentiles. And today we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. And I invite you to turn there as we walk through this passage verse by verse. But first we need to understand where we are in the book of Isaiah and where we are in Israel's history. Isaiah 9, first, Isaiah, the prophet, the whole book of Isaiah is an anthology of Isaiah's prophecies that that he uttered for about four decades, from about 740 or so to just about the end of that century, to 700 or so B.C. And Isaiah 9 was written about 735. We know this because of the historical details in chapter 7 and 8 leading up to 9, and it's one section. So it was written about 735 B.C. And Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember a a couple centuries before this, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom and exhorting them to put their trust in God, not in Assyria, not in the Assyrian Empire to protect them. The northern kingdom had already come just about to the end, uh, the fulfillment of their rebellion. It was about filled up, and God was just about ready to send the Assyrians in and judge them. Their apostasy was just about complete at this point. But the southern kingdom had a little bit more time. They weren't quite as far along in their rebellion against God. So Isaiah 7 verse 1 through Isaiah 9, verse 7, two and a half chapters or so, is one section. And Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, is the climax of this section of Israel, of Isaiah's exhortation to the southern kingdom to trust God, to put your hope in God. Now, back in Isaiah 7, I preached on this passage close to a year ago, maybe earlier this year, end of last year, I can't remember. But back in Isaiah 7, Judah's king, King Ahaz, failed to put his trust in God. Instead of trusting Yahweh, he decided to put his hope in the Assyrian, the the power of the Assyrian Empire to protect him from his oppressors and enemies. God told Ahaz that he would protect Judah. I will protect you from these northern enemies. Just look to me. Don't look to Assyria. God tells Ahaz in Isaiah 7, if you don't stand with me, then I will let you fall. You're going to fall if you don't stand with me. If you stand with Assyria, you'll fall. If you trust me, I will deliver you. I promise you have my word. And sadly, Ahaz refused God's help and he, he ran to Assyria for help instead. And in the midst of Ahaz's unfaithfulness, his wavering faith, or really no faith, God extended Ahaz one last offer. And it was surely an offer that Ahaz could not refuse. God told Ahaz in Isaiah 7, verse 11, ask me to give you a sign, anything. 
Make your request, God says, as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Just ask me for a miracle, Ahaz. Make it big, and I'll do it. Like he gave him a blank check. But Ahaz refused God's offer. In his stubborn pride, he turned down the offer because he was dead set on trusting in Assyria instead of God. How did God respond to Ahaz's pride? God told Ahaz that since he didn't ask for this miraculous sign, God was going to give one anyway to the house of David. Only this sign would not benefit Ahaz. After King Ahaz was dead and gone, God said he was going to cause a virgin in the house of David to conceive. She's going to bear a son. and She's going to call his name Emmanuel. The famous verse that I'm alluding to, of course, is Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, the house of David, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is good news for God's people. It's good news for the faithful. But not for King Ahaz because this sign, this Emmanuel son, will only come after Judah has been laid waste by God. The virgin will conceive and bear this son only after God's judgment has come upon both Israel and Judah in the south. God's judgment came upon Israel in the north first. He sent the Assyrians, the the Syrian empire. He sent their army to take Israel into exile in about 720 B.C. And then about 135 years later, God sent the Babylonians, the new empire. The Babylonians took over, conquered the Assyrians. And so God sent the Babylonians into Judah. And in 586, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. This judgment left Israel and Judah in darkness and gloom. Actually, it left the whole world in darkness. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, the light to the nations, the city on the hill, the priests on behalf of God who were to go out and bring the nations in. So if Israel is in utter darkness, what's that mean for the rest of the world? Isaiah 8 talks about the gloom that would be over the land of Israel and therefore over the whole world when the Messiah comes. The gloom that Isaiah is talking about will persist with ebbs and flows, but it will persist fundamentally until the virgin's son is born. And then, when he comes into the world, the Emmanuel child will bring light and salvation with him. The day will dawn. The darkness will give way to the rise of the sun. Unlike King Ahaz, whose short-sighted, unfaithful policies plunged Judah into more desperate straits, the king that Isaiah is envisioning here in chapter 9 and in chapter 7 is the ideal monarch. He will come as a child and he will bring an end to all wars. 
He will establish an eternal kingdom that is based on righteousness and truth and justice. And this brings us to our passage in Isaiah 9. Having described the darkness that will dominate the land and the world, Isaiah now directs our attention to the glorious hope on the horizon. The hope of glory that lies ahead. A day is ahead for the people of God when a great light will shine into the darkness and a special child, a miraculous child, will be born. This will be a time of peace and prosperity. He will usher in this time of peace and prosperity. God's God's glory will fill the earth. That's what Isaiah is seeing. Isaiah 7 introduced us to this son. He gave us one of his names, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah 9 tells us more about this son. He gives us four more names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's dive in. Let's look at verse 1 together. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her, will not be upon the land who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. So Isaiah is looking forward to a time when there will be no more gloom for those who have been in distress for a long time. And you'll notice in probably all of your translations that Isaiah is writing in the past tense. This is the the prophetic past tense, as it's called, where the prophets are seeing something and it's so real and it's so sure that it's going to happen because it's a vision from God, it's God's revelation, that they refer to it as having happened. So, the vision is of something future to Isaiah, even though it might seem awkward how it's in the past tense in some of these verses. But notice the references to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in that first verse. Zebulun and Naphtali were in the northern part of the land of Israel. And that's the part of Israel where Jesus was from. Jesus was raised in Galilee. And He conducted most of His ministry in Galilee, which is where the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were. Matthew quotes this passage Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, to explain why Jesus came to reside in Capernaum. Listen as I read Matthew 4, 13 to 16. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's Isaiah 9.1, and then he goes on to quote Isaiah 9.2, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. So Matthew's confirming for us that the prophecy in Isaiah 9 is being fulfilled in the person and in the ministry, in the work of Jesus Christ. Now back to Isaiah 9. I'll read verse 2 again as Isaiah from the Hebrew 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. The coming of Jesus, the coming of this Son, was God's turning on the cosmic light switch. Upon, until Jesus came, darkness reigned supreme. The entire Old Testament takes place in darkness at night, in the evening. But 2,000 years ago, God turned on that light. No one on earth produced this light. No human was responsible for it. Humanity had been groping in the dark. Even God's people groping in the darkness. We had been sitting in the land of the shadow of death, as Isaiah puts it here. And then suddenly, suddenly, we found ourselves blinking in the light. The the sin of man was not enough to keep God from sending the light of man. The sign that Isaiah promised back in Isaiah 7 came. Jesus says in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The capital L light came to Galilee first, to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali first. That's where the light was raised. That's where he was reared. It's where he grew into a man and became a construction worker. It's where the light began his ministry and first started shining bright into the world. The Gospel of John tells us that when this light shines into darkness, the darkness can't overcome it. The light who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, who shone his light in Zebulun and Naphtali and in Galilee of the Gentiles who died on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. He is the same light who shines in your heart, Paul says, so that you can turn from your sins and walk in that light until you die. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the prince of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The prince of this world, Satan, has blinded unbelievers from seeing the light of the prince of peace. But, Paul says, if you belong to Jesus, in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, if you belong to Jesus, then God has opened your eyes and He shined that light into you, into your heart, so that you're no longer blind. You can see, 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. From Isaiah's point of view, when Isaiah comes, he won't just replace the darkness with light. He'll also replace sadness and gloom with joy and gladness. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide 
the spoil. Notice how many times in one verse Isaiah says joy or rejoiced. What is the result of God's revelation of Himself through this Messiah child? The result is that we see in verse 3 that there is an abundance of joy. Abundant joy sweeps over God's people. The second half of verse 3 uses two metaphors to describe the joy that Isaiah is envisioning. There will be more joy than harvesters on a success, upon a successful completion of the harvest. There will be more joy than soldiers when they've won a great victory and they're dividing the spoil. But you see, their joy... Our joy, the joy of the people of God, it doesn't stem from a fruitful harvest or the spoils of war. The source of their joy, our joy, is the Lord. The only true source of joy is God. There's no joy other than the joy that comes from being in the presence of God, being with God, being connected to God. Knowing God. Psalm 16.11 says, You make me to know the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's only one place where you can find the fullness of the joy that God has for His people. And it's in the presence of God. This is a good time to ask yourself what your true source of joy is. See, Isaiah is talking about this time that's going to bring joy unspeakable. Is it going to bring you joy? Does it bring you joy? What is the foundation of your joy? Is your joy built on the rock of Christ? In Christ alone, or is your joy built on the sinking sand of temporary things? Which brings you more joy, eternal things or temporary things that are under the Christmas tree or in your investment portfolio? Have you centered your heart on the things that are above or on the things that are on this earth, in this world that are passing away? Are the eyes of your heart fixed on visible things or invisible things? Can you include yourself in Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 4.18? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If the Lord is not the foundation of your joy then at the end of the day, you don't really have joy. You can't have what the psalmist calls the fullness of joy. All you can have are cheap substitutes for the real thing that only God can give when you're with Him and when you're seeking Him and when you're seeking the things of the Lord. When we get to the end of verse 3, we're still left with the question of how. How will God increase the joy of His people? How is this going to play out? What will it look like? 
what are the reasons for this joy that Isaiah just can't seem to describe? You know, he has to use joy and rejoice over and over just to try to get at it. Well, the answer comes in the rest of this passage. In verses 4-7, to Isaiah, God, provides the reasons for the joy of God's people. The first reason for the joy is in verse 4. It says that there will be joy because God will take away our burdens and He will deliver us from oppression, from our oppressors. It says, For you have broken the yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder, the rod of His oppressor, as in the day of Midian. The Messianic age that Isaiah envisions is an age characterized by the lifting of our burdens. Jesus lifts your burden. He lifts your burden of sin primarily. And He replaces it with what He says is is a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. The Messianic age is also characterized by victory over our enemies here in verse 4. The end of verse 4 says, as in the day of Midian. That might seem a little bit obscure. What's, what's he talking about as in the day of Midian? Well, this is a reference to Gideon's defeat of the Midianites in Judges 6-8. to And what's interesting about the battle Gideon engages in is that Gideon's victory came by way of weakness, not strength, not Gideon's strength or Israel's strength. God reduced, you remember, God reduced Gideon's army to 300 men, from tens of thousands of men to 300 men. And and Gideon discovered in that moment that in God... Weakness is strength. When I am weak, then I am strong, Gideon learned. And as Paul also learned. Gideon and his 300 men watched in amazement as God used them to bring an unlikely deliverance, an unlikely victory. And we know that Christ's deliverance is far greater than Gideon's, but who is our enemy? Who's our primary enemy? What oppresses us? What do you need to be freed from the most? What do we need to be freed from the most? Well, it's not the Midianites. It's not the Islamic extremists. It's not the state. It's not the federal government or the local government. It's not a mean boss or oppressive parents or unfair church leaders. No, it's sin. There may be other enemies. There are other enemies. But your most significant enemy is your own sin. Which would have condemned you to hell forever apart from God's intervention. You were your own worst enemy. And if you don't know Christ, you are still your own worst enemy in one sense. You see, you didn't need Jesus to conquer anyone or anything more than you needed Him to conquer the old Adam in your heart. You needed Him to conquer sin and death and the devil. Gideon freed Israel from their Midianite oppressors in Judges 
6 to 8. But Jesus has freed you from the oppressive burden of your sin. Gideon freed Israel from temporary physical oppression, but Jesus has freed us from eternal spiritual oppression. He has emancipated us from the bonds of sin and death. And the second reason for joy comes in verse 5. It says there will be joy because there will be peace. Where there is peace, shalom, God's peace, there is true joy. It says, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and as fuel of fire. Here Isaiah says that the Messiah will eventually bring about the end of warfare. He will bring about a time when all the implements of battle will be thrown into the fire. The gear of soldiers will be used as fuel for the fire. In Luke 2.14 that we read, the angels announced this kind of peace at the birth of Jesus. They sing, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. In Ephesians 2, Paul declares that Jesus, who Himself is our peace, has broken down the wall of partition between man and God and between man and man. He's broken it down. How? How does He do this? Paul says He did it. He destroys that wall through the blood of His cross. As we come to verses 6 and 7, we come to the climax of this passage, which is really the climax of Isaiah 7, 1 to 9, 7. Who will, who will replace the gloom of verse 1 with glory? Who is the light of verse 2 that will replace the darkness, displace the darkness? Who is the cause of joy in verse 3? The rejoicing. Who will shoulder the burdens and break the oppression in verse 4? Who will burn the soldiers' sandals and garments in verse 5? Who are God's people waiting for? Who is the basis of their joy and their hope? Who will redeem them from their bondage to sin? Who can conquer sin and death the answer to these questions is in verses 6 and 7 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of david and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah tells the faithful remnant, and he, and he tells us that they were waiting for a child. They're waiting for a son. Not just any son. They're waiting for a capital, the capital S son. God will give this son to his people through the virgin that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 7, verse 14. This son will be born of a woman and will grow up and become 
the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the King that rules the entire world from the throne of David. His government will be a worldwide government. And He will hold up the world on His shoulder. He will put the whole world on His back, as it were. And it won't be hard. He can bear the government of the whole world because He is the God-man. God in the flesh. And the first thing He's going to do, the first thing He'll do from Isaiah's perspective, the first He's already done this from ours, but the first thing He'll do on His way to becoming the monarch of all things is He will shoulder the burden of our sin. If you belong to Christ, if you belong to this Son, this Messiah, the record of your sin debt has been nailed to the cross as we read about earlier from from Colossians 2. It's been nailed to the cross once and for all. Jesus bore your sin burden on the cross. He bore the sins of the whole world on the cross so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the cross is precisely where Jesus established His kingdom. The cross is where He established the right to be the king of the whole world. The cross is where He established the right to be the worldwide monarch, king. Philippians 2, verses 8-11 to say this. It says, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because He humbled Himself, because He went to the cross, therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By way of the cross, Jesus became king over everything and everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And there will be no end to his reign. Because of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection, there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom. There will be no end to the increase of peace on the earth. Someday the peace of the Prince of Peace will cover the whole earth. Two chapters later, Isaiah 11.9, Isaiah envisions a time when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Emmanuel's government, the kingdom of God, will continue to increase and someday all of our enemies, all of God's enemies and ours, will be destroyed, including, and most importantly, including death and the entire earth will know that Jesus is the Lord and they will acknowledge him as king they will bow the knee in verse 6 the Messiah is given a fourfold name the first one is wonderful counselor the wonderful counselor is the one who performs what we talked about last week in Isaiah 5 he performs the wonderful counsels of God There should be no comma between Wonderful and Counselor. It's one name, Wonderful Counselor. 
And as we saw last week in Isaiah 25.1, God's wonderful counsels are God's faithful and mighty acts that He planned to do from the beginning. The Hebrew word behind wonderful indicates that we are talking about things that God does. That only God can do. The wonderful counsels of God are His remarkable, supernatural, miraculous acts in the world on behalf of His people. Isaiah says in chapter 25 that God's wonderful counsels are faithful and true. They're dependable. Only someone who is completely faithful and true can do them. Can perform them. Can make sure they happen. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor who makes good on all of God's wonderful counsels from of old. He performs the wonderful supernatural acts that were planned for Him from the beginning. The most important wonderful counsels of all were the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross is where the wonderful Counselor showed Himself faithful and true to His Father and to His people and to His Word. Mighty God is the next title. And there's no mistaking what this name means. Commentators who don't want to acknowledge what it says, what it means, have tried all kinds of ways to get around the fact that it says that He is Mighty God. But Mighty God is a title of Yahweh Himself, even in this book, this same prophecy. And we learned in Isaiah 7 that this child, this Son, is God with us. Now Isaiah says that He is Mighty God with us. In the next chapter, in chapter 10, Isaiah uses the same title, Mighty God, to refer to Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah is saying an amazing thing. An unavoidable thing here in verse 6 of chapter 9. This son will not just be a newborn baby boy. He will be God in the flesh. Mighty God in the flesh. And when, when you look to the face of this child born of the virgin, you will be looking into the face of Almighty God. You see, Jesus is fully God and fully human. 100% God and 100% human. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has become man. Everlasting Father. This is an interesting one. Jesus is called Everlasting Father. Now, Isaiah is not saying that this Messianic Son will be the first person of the Trinity that we call Father. It's not going to be the Father becoming incarnate. The Father is not the Messiah. The Father is not this Son. It's the Son of God. And yet He's called Everlasting Father. Well, Jesus is not God the Father. He is an everlasting Father, but He's not God the Father. He's God the Son. But He's an everlasting Father nonetheless. And the emphasis in this title is on the character that the Son bears. The Son is like His Father. Like Father, like Son. And He cares for His children with fatherlike compassion and tenderness. For all eternity, Jesus will deal with His children as a loving 
Father. And so you can view Jesus as a loving Father figure. An ideal king, after all, is a Father figure who loves and protects the people in His kingdom and who sacrifices Himself for His people when necessary. Who lays down His life for His kingdom, for His people. Jesus is the everlasting Father because He is the perfect everlasting King. The perfect everlasting Monarch. Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace will establish peace on earth among men. As the angels put it. But establishing peace among men is not the foremost mission. It it really is what flows out of the primary thing that Jesus does. The Prince of Peace came primarily to establish peace between God and men. And then when there is peace between God and men, there can be peace between men and men. You see, the most important war going on in Israel's day was not the war. In Isaiah's day, rather. It was not the war between Judah and the northern countries, nations that were trying to invade and oppress her. The most significant war was the one that began in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, the war between God and mankind. When Adam and Eve declared war against God in the Garden of Eden, they compelled God to stand against them in judgment. He had to. He couldn't just overlook mankind's sin. He is righteous and just and holy. He cannot compromise His holiness. He couldn't just turn a blind eye and act as though it never happened. That's not what God's mercy ever looks like. It's not how God's grace works. The holy and righteous God had to declare war against unholy and unrighteous mankind. There was no peace between God and man. God's very nature compelled Him to pour out His eternal wrath on humanity. That's what had to happen. When Adam and Eve sinned, they destroyed the peace. They destroyed the bond that existed between God and man. They destroyed that fellowship, that communion, that sweet and perfect fellowship with God. However, human history did not end there in Genesis 3, did it? Because, here's why, because God's holiness and righteousness and perfection are matched by God's kindness and love and mercy. God still had to punish humanity's sin. He couldn't compromise. He was still at war with mankind. Mankind had declared war. His nature still required Him to pour out His intense intense judgment and eternal wrath on humanity. But there was a way for Him to do this without wiping humanity off the face of the earth forever, once and for all. There was a way for God to condemn mankind eternally 
while making it possible for mankind to be at peace with God eternally. But there was only one way. God Himself would have to become man. He would have to become truly human. He would have to really be connected to our humanity in a real, uncompromising way. He would have to be born as an infant, and then he would have to endure his own judgment and wrath in the form of a man, in the form of a servant, as Peter puts it. He would have to go to the cross where he would receive all at once the collective punishment that mankind deserved. You see, then and only then could there be peace between God and rebellious humanity. People of God, you have peace with God. That's the good news. You have peace with God because Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, wrapped Himself in your, our humanity. He became one of us. And then He took upon Himself the judgment and the wrath and the curse that your sin incurred, that your sin deserved. And then He gave you His perfect righteousness so that you can stand before God you can stand in the judgment. The Prince of Peace has established peace with us. He's established peace with you. And Paul says in Colossians 1.20 that he has accomplished this peace by the blood of his cross. Peace with God was not something that you accomplished. It's not something that you helped God do. Your peace with God is all God's doing. The Son was given to you. He was given to us. It was a free gift that we didn't even know that we needed. It was not your zeal that saved you. Paul says in Titus 2, our epistle lesson, that we are to be zealous for good works. But you see, that zeal is only possible because God was first zealous for your salvation. His zeal saved you in order to make you zealous for good works. Titus 2.14 The zeal of the Lord of hosts did it. That's what verse 7 says. God's zeal is why you are saved. So during this Advent and Christmas time, thank the Lord for His zeal. Let's pray. We do thank You, Father, for Your determination to save us. To do what it took to make us at peace with You. Thank You for taking on our burdens. For taking on our sin. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for going all the way to the cross to make peace with us. And thank You, Holy Spirit, for uniting us to the Son, to the the Christ, to the Messiah, 
who is the Son of God. We thank You for these things. And we ask for Your help to walk in the salvation that You have given to us. We ask for Your help in being zeal for good works since You have been zealous for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.